This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Bruce. And Bruce was married to a narcissist that turned his world upside down once they had a child together. It's a story of financial abuse, court abuse, and a master manipulator. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning in to this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before... We get to our episode with Bruce. I just wanted to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. I, did I say written review? Written review. I think it didn't really come out that well. Um, but anyway, now if you haven't been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show. Our website is NarcissistApocalypse.com and fill out the guest form and we will go from there. But the quickest way to be part of our show is to go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and to read a letter to your narcissist and be part of our Letters to Our Narcissist compilation episode. We have a voicemail recorder on our website to record. You go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, right side of the page, there's a button there. It's always floating around. It's hard to miss. And it says, send voicemail, press it and away you'll go. We're accumulating these letters to have a volume three of that episode. So send those voicemails in. And if you want us to read a letter uh, instead uh, for you, uh, my, me or my old pal Melissa will do it. Just send your letter to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Other things on our site, we're now offering a high-conflict parenting courses that can be found at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have now partnered with an online parenting company, and many of these courses we are offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you've listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court, and now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. What else do I got on my list here? Well, we have another podcast 
called Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, and it is now available for your listening pleasure. Our first 11 episodes have been released, and on the last one, I got hypnotized by a hypnotherapist and a worldwide coach named Colleen Marie. It was quite the episode, quite the experience. And this week, we'll be having the return of an audience favorite, and that is Shireen Pekar. And we will be discussing divorce in parallel parenting with a narcissist. So if you're looking for a therapist or a coach like the ones I just mentioned from our Q&A podcast, please do go to abusetherapy.org. And if we don't have someone in your area, let us know and we will help find one for you using abusetherapy.org. Helps support the show. But do you know what else helps support the show? Our Patreon. Yes, we started a Patreon. And if you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests, and much, much more, join our Patreon. We'll be releasing new content on there every week. So to help support the show, become a patron of our Patreon at patreon.com slash NarcissistApocalypse. We also started an Instagram and a YouTube channel, and we started making fun pop culture narcissist-based videos, but we also created a new one uh, last week about the power of storytelling, and I discussed the healing process by using the formula that we have on this show. So if you want to help yourself feel less shame, go check out that video on Instagram or on our YouTube under Narcissist Apocalypse. And now... Before I get out of your way, I do throw a couple of jokes out there during today's recording as Bruce is a big Bruce Springsteen fan, and we were joking around about it before the call, and that's why his name is actually Bruce for the show. And also, Bruce really wanted to come on the show today and hammer home some educational points for people and not just tell his story, and I want to thank him for doing so. And like all of you, Bruce is just a really good person. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Bruce, for being on the show. And now it's time for me to get out of my way and your way. Here is my conversation with Bruce. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse. With me today, I have Bruce. How are you, Bruce? I'm good, Brandon. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me and doing this podcast and everything. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. And everyone else out there who is listening, I hope you're doing well as well and hope you're staying safe. If, with everything that is going on, and now I'm going to get out of my way in your way and give the floor to Bruce, who is, who is born to run. The floor, <laughs> the floor is now yours. Thank you. That's good. Um, you know, I'm in a position now. Uh, you know, with dealing with this thing, you know, we call narcissistic abuse, and as I mentioned. Um, you know, a year ago, this word was not, was literally not in my vocabulary. And, you know, I've really been exhausting myself, you know, the past year, um, to figure out like what was, what's been happening, you know, in my life. I've, I've basically, my story is I, I married a woman, um, who's just a complete sociopath and, um, you know, um, and that's not hyperbole, you know, um, I, we've had a five-year relationship and right now I have a daughter 20 months old with her. And, um, I'm just, it's been a year of me going through the process of recovery and, um, you know, validation is a big thing and, and informing yourself and everything. So this podcast kind of plays a role in that. Um, and you know, I see the word sociopath, you know, I kind of 
mean that in like, you know, these people, you know, whether they're borderliners or histrionics or, you know, antisocials or narcissists, I, I just say sociopaths because, you know, whatever it is that's, that's with them, you know, these, these behaviors, it's, it's patterned and it's clearly there's something pathological there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you see these patterns and you hear these podcasts and people describing these same behaviors. Um, so like, you know, so I, my sociopath is, um, is a woman I married and, um, basically, um, I'll start off with a linear timeline, I guess, to kind of share my story and hopefully, um, you know, there's some resources in there that other people can kind of use and help, you know, to share, help them with their, you know, processing of everything. Um, you know, when I met this woman, um, I was still in the army. I served in the army for uh, 10 years. Um, I did a lot of cool stuff in the army. Um, I traveled around, I've been to over 40 countries. Um, you know, I, I completed my bachelor's and my master's degree. I say all this not to, to be boastful, but to kind of put into context how well I was doing and how devastating the, 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 the abuse, this abuse is, you know, how devastating to put into context. And, you know, when I met this woman, I, this was in 2015, um, I was doing really well for myself. Um, I was still in the service. I was finishing my bachelor's degree with a double major. I graduated the top 5% of my class, um, while working full time in the army, you know, <laughs> um, you know, um, and I, I was really set on, you know, I want to get married. I want to have a family. You know, I was really intentional about that and I was making it clear, you know, when I met this, this person, you know, I was making it very clear that, you know, I was looking for something, um, you know, um, real and, and, you know, and, you know, these people kind of hone in on that, you know, when they meet you, um, you know, you can have, you know, you could be completely secure in yourself and, and have never experienced, you know, this type of abuse before. And, and you can be completely healthy and secure. And, and when you experience, you know, the, the initial idealization or love bombing, it's just, it's like nothing you have ever experienced. You know, it's really like a freight train that hits you sideways. <laughs> you can, you know, all this literature I'm reading now, like I mentioned, I could have read this five years ago, and I still wouldn't have really understood the gravity of this, of the gaslighting, you know, of the stonewalling, of, you know, the projection, you know, of the, of the smear campaign. Like, you just, you can learn it, and you can know these words and these patterns, but even if, if, you, don't, if you don't experience it or know someone personally who's really experienced it, it's just so hard to fathom. And, and, um, and, you know, people, you know, I think I speak for a lot of people when you try and figure out these behaviors, you try and, you know, put them into context, you try and find the words to describe them. And, you know, marriage therapists won't really get it. You know, your family members won't really get it. It's very hard, you know, to really find validation. And, and, um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's good that this podcast exists. People can listen to each other and really, you know, we'll have completely different experiences in life, but the patterns are there. The abuse is there. And it's just, it's so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's so impactful. And you can, when someone has lived it, you see it, you know? Um, and so my story is like everyone else's. At the beginning, I met this person. Um, they were completely all over me, idealized me, wanted to show me around to all their family and friends. Um, you know, this is the, this is the love bombing, idealizing me, um, wanting to learn everything about me, everything that I was into, you know, they want, they were, they also shared, you know, the same interests, you know, curiously and, and it's, it's powerful. And you think that, 
you in the beginning you and this is this is what leads into the trauma bonding and how people allow this abuse to occur in the beginning when you meet this you know i met this person i was really like you know really you know very very um very you know very upfront about my intentions with relationships and wanting to have a family and this person they pe- these people feed off of that you know they kind of play into it and and they idealize you and um and this woman, you know, you think, oh, this woman wants to show me around so much to all her friends and her family. She must really love me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she, must, she must really be proud of me. Wow, you know, this person wants to show me off to everyone and is so proud of all my accomplishments and everything I've done in life. And little by little, that those things, those things change, you know, those things kind of morph into something else. And um, this is how idealization goes into devaluation and you get trauma bonded. And so these people, this woman I was with little by little started being controlling and wanted me, you know, I would be at home, you know, on a Friday doing economics homework for grad school. And we would be at a bar with all her friends and would get into fights with me, you know, that I'm not with her. Like, you know, it's just odd stuff. It kind of develops. Um, and like, this is where, you know, this, this, this devaluation happens, um, little by little. And, and it's, and it's, it's difficult because, um, you know, when you go through this, this person I met, it was, it was difficult because this woman was, would be, you know, I, after about a year of dating her, I noticed that there would be big ups and downs. And so this woman, you know, if, if there was a little like minor you know, um, issue that we were dealing with in a relationship, she would have just zero empathy, just no empathy. And she would just say, Oh, you're emoting, you know, are you too sensitive? You know, and this is, this is when the devaluing starts when you see their behaviors and you try and, and call them out on it. Like a normal, a normal range adult does, you know, you want to address problems, you know, these people refuse to, and, 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 it, and it's, and it's, it's disorienting. And so this is what, what kind of was developing. And I remember early on in the relationship, literally about three months into it, um, this woman accused me of trying to sleep with her best friend. And it was, and it was just the most bizarre thing. And, um, and it was odd. And, and, I, and I remember breaking up with her at these moments. And, you know, she wanted me to go out back to brunch with her. And, you know, I said to her, I said, you know, you do things that hurt people and then you blame them for being hurt. And I said, it's like you're a narcissist. And, and that was five years, over five years ago. I, I look back at that now and I'm like, holy shit. Like, it's a huge flag <laughs> that I said, you know, three months into a relationship. And you just don't, at the time you say this word narcissist colloquially, you don't really, you know, you don't really get the full scope of it because it's just inhuman behavior. <laughs> but like, it was there. And I was seeing things and I was trying to set boundaries. And it was there. And like, this is, you know, when you look back at the relationship, it's amazing how all, when you educate yourself on this type of abuse, it's amazing how you see all the patterns and all the flags. So I saw that early on after a year of dating her, um, the devaluing was happening. The woman was getting controlling. Um, little by little, I started getting isolated from my family, my friends, and everything had to be about her, you know, and this, and this is, you know, this is basically, this is the way of isolating. They do, they, one of the patterns of abuse is isolating. So they little by little isolate you, you know, from your support group. And this is how that, you know, you get closer trauma bonded. And one of the things I noticed after a year of dating her now we're in 2016, um, this woman would, would, engage in abusive behavior. Like she would drink and hit me, you know, and I've, I've never, I'm six feet tall, you know, I'm 200 pounds. <laughs> I've never been hit by a woman and this woman would drink and would hit me, 
like she's she's punched me, smacked me, kicked me, elbowed me, um, and and you know grabbed my grabbed me by the throat and stuff. And like you just you've never I've never experienced anything like that. And it's like even he tells people say, well, why did you deal with that? Why did you you know? And it's just strange because this type this type of sociopath that I had was covert and 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 feeds off of sympathies. And so when I first met her, we go, you know, going back back a bit. When I first met her, her story was, oh, I was in an abusive relationship. <laughs> you know, I, there was domestic violence, and I'm a victim of domestic, you know, this domestic violence. So these people learn how to, they literally hunt for people like us, people with empathy, people so, with normal range. So, yeah. Sorry, was, so was that one of the big things that got you hooked originally? The uh, sympathy right? aspect and the guilt, and what other kind of things uh, hooked you in? She was mirroring, mirror, sorry, mirroring uh, everything you were doing as well? Yes. So the mirroring was there. You know, at the time, you know, I was in the Army and stuff, but, you know, I like, you know, I'm in a big city. I like going to operas and musicals and stuff like that. And this woman was, like, into that, or so I thought. So, like, that's the mirroring. Everything you're into, you know, they copy and think, wow, this person, she has my same interests. So well, that hooks you in. What was, and, the, what, and, was the, what, then, what was the big thing that hooked you where you're like, yes, like, or not yes, but, like, that, like you were fully yeah. hooked. You're like, this is the sealed the deal. Was, Yes, the big thing was how proud she was of me, how she wanted to show me to all of her family, all of her friends, all of the time. <laughs> you know so is it fair to say that all of a sudden you got your self-worth and self-esteem was now taken away from being something that you already had, but was now put into her court where her court was giving you this self-esteem and giving you this thing. So now you've moved across the line and it is now shifted into her possession. And once it was in her possession, did that become a huge problem kind of going forward? Because I wrote down here, um, when you say... I have to read my writing here. When you say sure. that you're doing well, um, and that's not, you know, at the beginning of your story, that's not just saying you're doing well work-wise or you're doing well with the army and all of your accomplishments. You're doing well mentally. You're coming into this thing. Yes. You're coming into right. this thing with no nothing right. kind of beforehand. You're coming in no. like as a psychologically... A uh, well-balanced yes. person. Exactly. Yes, I'm coming into this. I'm like literally. I've, I've, you know, everything I was doing, all my endeavors in the service and in, in undergrad and grad school. I mean, I was successful. I was dominating. I was doing very well. I was getting my graduate research. I was getting published in op-eds. I, I was then published in Russian language, Arabic, English. I was doing good. I was doing. I was like in great shape. I was running five to 10 miles a day. You know, I was reading voraciously, just, you know, I finished my bachelor's in four years working full time. I went straight three weeks later. I went straight into a graduate degree program while still in the army. And it's like a top five program in the U S I mean, to say, I, I, to say that I was doing well is an understatement. I was doing it excellent. And so these people kind of, when you see them, that's, that's a significant thing you pointed out because you can be the most, you can be healthy, mentally, physically healthy, and you still meet a sociopath 
And it's, you, there's nothing to prepare you. You know, you can, everyone has their own childhood things that they deal with that can fe- lead into codependency and, and, you know, repetition compulsion where you, are, you, know, you repeat bad experiences in relationships. You know, that's all, that's all real. But that, I, was, I was not just some wounded duck that this one found. These people target people for their strengths. They do not target people who are weak. They target people who have empathy, who have emotional intelligence, who are willing to uh, self-reflect and take blame for problems in relationships. That's who they target. They target us for our strengths. And that's an important thing to kind of reiterate for everyone who's recovering from abuse. Don't feel like, you know, you're like wounded. Know that you, you were you know, you know, preyed on, you know. And so, yeah, that's exactly it. I was doing very well. I met this woman. I was mentally, physically doing well, excelling everything I was doing. And little by little, you end up losing your sense of self. And, 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 and this is where idealization can really, can really just systematically break down boundaries. And that's what leads into trauma bonding and, to co- and, and these abusive patterns and how you get sucked into it. So, that, yeah, that's completely accurate. And little by little, after a year of dealing with this, you know, from 2015 into 2016, this woman would be, would engage in abusive behavior that just was so confusing and disorienting. And you, when you're experiencing it, it's, it's just, you've never, you know, you've never really dealt with people who do this. And so like when I would try to confront her on it, she would engage in stonewalling. So she would ghost me. She would, she would not talk to me. She would not allow the problem to get addressed. You know, so she would, she would withhold communication. She would withhold closure. And, and she would stonewall and she would do that. And I would literally go for like a week of like, of like confused, being confused and overwhelmed. Like what's happening. And I would start sending texts and emails. Oh, I love you. I hate you. You know, you're, you're doing anything at this point to elicit some normal range emotional response from these people. And so little by little, this is the crazy making, you know? So this woman would literally engage in stonewalling. And after like a week of it, I would be on the couch. This is 2015. I would be on the couch with fevers and I just had no clue what was happening. And it was like, my health was deteriorating. I would break up with her, you know, after about a week of this happening, she would come to my house in a yellow cab, you know, midnight after drinking a bottle of wine, say, Oh babe, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I do this. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm dealing with work and this and that. And, and again, this is the initial hook of sympathy. You know, they're preying on you for being a normal range person. They're preying on you for having empathy and wanting to care about people. <laughs> they're, preying, they're preying on that. And so this is what she used. And at the time, you, you rationalize it. You, in 2015, when you start going into abusive patterns and, and, it's, and it's physically and mentally like, you know, breaking you down, you start rationalizing it and you say, oh, well, this person's hurting me, but they're willing to come in and back and say they made a mistake. They're clearly, you know, um, willing to admit their faults and, and their good relationship material. But it's like, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> you know, that's why I was wrong. Because this, this woman wanted her behaviors that she would admit things in private and wouldn't, wouldn't really allow them to be addressed later on. We went to a marriage therapist or when we're talking in front of family or friends. And that's, that's, and that's something that's, that's intermittent reinforcement. You know, these people abuse you and they devalue you, but they don't want to lose you because they want that supply. You know, they need that supply for their narcissistic supply, for their ego, for their, for their false self. And so they want to give you that intermittent reinforcement. And they do it privately to kind of reel you in. And this is how you get trauma bonded because you go through these just chaotic emotions that you're feeling from this just, you know, disorienting abuse. And, you, and the only thing that kind of 
makes the pain go away is, is to talk to them again because you want to return to that stage when they loved you, when you thought they loved you, you know, when you thought you were creating unconditional love. But that doesn't exist. So, like, this is what we, you know, this is where I was at in 2016. And this woman, again, would engage in the silent treatment. And, you know, for a week at a time, I would break up with her. And, you know, and, and, I, and I thought I was testing the relationship, setting boundaries by breaking up with her. And then she would come back, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I set a boundary. But, you know, you, you, you little by little lose yourself in that. And, and your boundaries just keep getting walked back. And you totally start being, being, being reliant on these people because you're, you're, you get, they just systematically like wear you down to where you're the one contributing everything to the relationship you know? <laughs> and they're contributing nothing. And so, so that's why I say they, they prey on people with strengths to, to, to be able to carry that, you know? And so 2016 was happening. I'm in the army. I'm in grad school. I'm doing amazing. I'm working full time. Um, little by little, I started having health problems. And I didn't know what it was. And, um, you know, at this time, this woman, you know, I was in the Army. I had, you know, pretty unique experiences. You know, I've been hit by roadside bombs and all this stuff. You know, that's, that's something I was completely aware of that I was volunteering for. Um, it was something I was completely, you know, cognizant of. And, you know, so you go into that, those types of experiences as someone in the military. With that level of, like, you know, you know, you know, resilience, you know, you're going to deal with this. You train for that. You have the personality to volunteer yourself to take on those things. And so I experienced all that and I was doing good, you know, and, and I, and I didn't go into, I wasn't, you know, overseas in war. Uh, the last time I was there, it was over a decade ago. So you're looking at when I'm in 2016, now it was at least like six years since I've been into war, you know, and I'm doing good in all of this stuff. So when 2016 was happening, I started getting all these health problems. I started having trouble sleeping. I developed sleep apnea little by little um, my, my, my back and my, I had like, you know, wear and tear from, you know, the job I had in the army was very physical. You know, I was doing a lot of parachuting with a ranger and it was very physical. And um, all of a sudden this covert abuse, you don't know what's happening. And it starts to really, you develop all these chronic health problems. And I went into the VA, you know, I, there's, you know, the VA hospital. I went in there and I said, I don't know what's happening. I said, I, I said, I'm having headaches. I'm, I'm not sleeping. Uh, they did a test. So, you know, have sleep apnea and, and my back got bad. I started gaining weight and like all this stuff started happening and the VA attributed it to the military. And I had no clue. Like I, I developed gastrointestinal problems. I was hospitalized for a week because my stomach became ill and I had no clue why. <laughs> I had no clue. I literally had no clue why. And, and the thing is, at the time, the, mil- the VA said, look, maybe it was probably from trauma from the military. And, you know, like PTSD is something like when you have PTSD, you know, it's from a, it's from a specific event. So let's say, let's say I had post-traumatic stress from, be, you know, being blown up. For <laughs> you know, you, you, you relive that experience. You have intrusive thoughts. You avoid, you know, talking about it. You avoid, you know, scenarios that you have the same, you know, sights or sounds that will elicit some, you know, a negative response. You avoid all that. I never had that. I never had any intrusive thoughts of war. I never had nightmares. You know, people have that stuff. That shit's real. I never had that. But I was having tremendously, you know, like complex health problems, like chronic health problems. And the Army did not know why. And they basically said, like, this is probably from wear and tear and from trauma from the Army. And I was like, okay. You know, and I was, like, going to therapy and doing all this stuff. Little by little, the woman was gaslighting me. So the woman was starting to abuse me. 
And then when it was affecting me, she started associating it with the military and saying, oh, uh, oh, you know, if, if I would get a fever and my stomach gets sick from her stonewalling me, oh, it's because, you know, you have to process your trauma from the Army. <laughs> you know? So this is a gaslighting. And at the time, you know, you, being a normal range person, you want to address your own problems. You want to take control of it and say, okay, I want to know what my health problems are. I want to solve it. I want to go to therapy and I want to process all this and I want to be, you know, so you go through all of that. And it's, and this is what the gaslighting leads, you know, leads into this stuff. And, you know, basically in 2016, I started having all these health problems. Um, I, like I said, my back was getting bad. The army basically said like, Hey, like we can reclassify you to give you like an administrative position. And they said, or they said, you know, you've done 10 years of service. Um, you know, you, you have a few injuries. We can basically give you like a medical retirement package. And so at the time I was, you know, I really liked the army. I, I got to accomplish so much in it and I wanted to stay in the service. And this woman, I kind of started incorporating her in these decisions and she talked me into building up my retirement package. And so in 2016, it's worth noting that we were not even living together yet. This woman was going out on lunch breaks, taking pictures of like expensive wedding rings on her ring finger. You know, and sending me the pictures. So this is, you know, the intermittent reinforcement where she's abusing me and my health is deteriorating. <laughs> and I don't understand it. But she's sending me pictures, like, trying to suck me into proposing to her. So, you know, going in, so this is what was happening. Going into 2017, um, I ended up getting, you know, medical benefits and, like, a little pension package from the Army. And this woman, knowing that, talked me into, um, basically talked me into, um, marrying her a month before leaving the service. Okay. So it was a month before leaving the service and she talked me into marrying her. And, um, and I wanted a full, I wanted a full wedding. I wanted a family to be there, all this. They weren't able to at the time. And so this woman said, Oh, you know, we'll have a real wedding one day. And, you know, she talked me into having just this courthouse wedding. And at the time, I just agreed to it, you know, thinking, well, again, going into the relationship, I really want to get married. You know, I want it, you know, I want a family, a woman, a wife, spouse to take care of. I want children. And so, like, she kind of prayed on that. And she talked to me getting married one month before I left the Army in 2017. And we had a courthouse wedding. A month later, she had me download an app to time when I was, when I was to impregnate her. And at the time, I said, you know, I want to finish grad school. You know, I, th- I left the Army. I got this, like consulting gig with like this like international NGO for like a year. And I was doing really well. I, right when I left the army, I was doing this consulting gig and I was finishing my, my, you know, my graduate program. And I said, you know, I want to, you know, to slow down and, and let's finish my graduate program and let me, you know, I want to buy a house and all this stuff, you know, the American dream, you know? <laughs> and, um, this woman kind of, you know, would cry and would say, oh, I really want to have a kid. And, I, you know, I really am ready to have a child now and all this stuff. And so, again, kind of playing on sympathies and playing on, you know, what my, what my you know, I was passionate about. And so, again, you in- interpret as, oh, wow, this person really loves me. This person was, you know, really loves me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that they're pushing me into this. And so, um, you know, I download the app a month after marriage. This woman was, you know, pregnant. And so, you know, I was, I was, I was excited. You know, I'm married. I just left a 10 year career in the army. I'm doing, I have a great job. I'm finishing my master's degree. And so I was doing very well. And little by little, I started seeing more abusive behavior while someone was pregnant. And, um, then I, you know, I was trying to go to marriage counseling with her. I started seeing certain behaviors I was concerned of. 
And um, I remember one at one point I was, you know, driving over a bridge to take her to a park to get exercise. And I started crying. And I said, you know, I said, you have you, no respect for me. And I said, I'm afraid that when our daughter's born, you know, you're not, you're not going to respect me and she won't respect your father. And I was crying. And the woman, you know, would get fits of narcissistic rage. Anytime you try and talk about, you know, any of your emotions or any of your normal range concerns, you know, in a, in a relationship, you know, you, you want to, in a relationship, you want to allow yourself to be vulnerable. You want to do that. That's normal. That's healthy. That does not make you codependent. That makes you normal to want to be, be allow yourself to be vulnerable to someone, to want to open up to them. And you want, and you want to do that when you think, oh, I'm giving unconditional love to someone. You know, you want them to provide you reassurance. You know, that's normal. That's not codependence. That's a normal re- reaction. That's a normal behavior. This woman preys on those things, you know? So the things that, you know, I would talk to her about, you know, when, you know, you're vulnerable, they kind of save that to, to weaponize it against you, you know, later on when they engage in, you know, smear campaigning. So, like, this was happening. I was trying to address these abusive behaviors, again, continually trying to set up boundaries. And I, we ended up getting, going to a marriage counselor while she was, you know, pregnant, and I found myself in the marriage counselor, you know, wanting to, again, you go into the marriage, you know, a big thing, you know, I started reading lots of marriage books and parenting books, and I'm a big fan of John Gottman, and he's, he's a really good doctor. He, uh, he's of, he of, the God, of the Gottman method. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he has, you know, the four horsemen of, yeah, John Gottman's great. The four horsemen of, you know, he can predict, he has a 95% accuracy rate, you know, for predicting divorce. And he calls these four horsemen. It's like the four signs of a divorce. And all of them are narcissistic abuse behaviors. And so, like, I started reading all this John Gottman stuff, trying to, you know, John Gottman says, you don't attack each other, you attack the problem. So as a normal range person, you go into these abuse things, and you don't know it's fucking abuse. You don't know it's, it's abuse. And you go into this stuff, and you're trying to solve this riddle. And, you go, and so I was going into marriage counseling saying, you know, I can do this better. I can do that better. I can, you know, I want to improve this in my, so you go and say these self-reflective, you know, you know, self-aware statements in the abuser and saying, yes, you need to do that better. You need to improve that. That upsets me. You need to do this and that. And so that's a dynamic that was, I saw happening. And so the marriage counselor, not under, and this is, this is something everyone should know. These people will, these people will get it wrong. The marriage counselor, not understanding of, of be able to see narcissistic abuse. He started treating my responses to, to being abused. So this man with the marriage counselor started addressing how I was responding to being abused. And that's toxic. That's toxic. Everyone needs to know that that's toxic. When you're in an abusive relationship, there is not two abusers. There is an abuser and there is a victim. That is that there is no two abusers. And this type of narcissistic abuse, this is not a he said, she said in no way. Marriage counselors will think so. Your family who doesn't understand will think so. You know, courts and judges and attorneys and they will all think so, but it's not the case. In an abusive relationship, there's an abuser and there's a victim. And so these people engage in something called reactive abuse. So as I mentioned to you in the beginning, this one would stonewall, and I would send these emotionally dysregulated texts and emails trying to elicit some responses to her. She saved all that. And so she started showing it off to everyone, like saying, look at him. He's unstable, everyone. He's unstable. And this is called reactive abuse. You know, these people record your responses to being abused, 
and then they feign victimhood. So another another big you know pattern behavior of, of these of these sociopaths is they turn themselves into the victim. And this woman was was an expert at it. I mean, her career. She worked in 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 a, in a, in a high paying sales position. You know, when I met her, she would wear you know thousand dollar dresses and expensive high heels. And so this was her character. She was a she was a salesperson. She knows how to manipulate. And this is. This is why, in some ways, these people end up in these, successful in these positions. <laughs> so this is inherent in her character. And so, you know, I was dealing with that, and it was a very overpowering. And in the marriage, marriage counseling, you know, I found that the marriage therapist was not getting it. And again, at that time, 2018 now, we're in, this woman, you know, I did not, I, again, narcissistic abuse was not in my vocabulary. I did not really get, you know, understand what was happening. And so I, I really was exhausting myself trying to educate myself. So I mentioned I started reading all these books and, and getting all these resources and doing the legwork. And that's a big thing for abuse recovery. Like you can talk to a therapist and all of this and that, but you have to really find power from yourself. And that's and that goes through through you know especially in initial stages validation is huge and so educating yourself on this, these behaviors is, is vital and I found myself doing that because honestly these abusive behaviors are, are so damaging you never want it to happen again you literally never want it to happen again so you want to educate yourself so much that you can see a sociopath you know a mile away <laughs> so so you're going through yeah. all, you're going through all of that your yeah. self your self esteem has taken most likely yeah. a huge dive at this point you probably think you're crazy no one is validating you uh, what is i guess the first resource it is it somewhere in this near this timeline where you read something and you go to yourself ah that's what i'm dealing with yes so that, I did not find that aha moment until after my daughter was born. So okay. when, when, so, so while this woman was expecting, um, we were now living together. We were married. Um, this woman's in her second th- trimester, going into her third trimester. Um, some weird things started happening. And so, and that's going to lead into my aha moment. <laughs> so, um, so now in 2018, we're living together in marriage. My, you know, she's pregnant with my daughter. My daughter, thank God, is, is going along healthy. And, um, and, you know, I'm, again, I have a pregnant wife at home. I would do anything. Again, me being a normal range person with empathy, I would do anything for her. I think I married her. I said wedding vows. You know, I was very intentional on that. And, you know, I give her unconditional love. If it's, something's it, it, wrong it, with her, I... It sounds like a song yeah. that by some by a guy from New Jersey. Um, um, yeah. says, Maybe your other boyfriends couldn't pass the test. Well, if you're rough and ready for love, honey, I'm tougher than the rest. Do, do you know that song? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thank um, you, thank you, yeah, Bruce. You know. I, I had I I had to throw that in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's, this stuff is, is, is really, you know, it's tricky because you really exhaust yourself emotionally and, and you realize like everything you thought was there, you know, it's, it's a complete illusion what you're really doing with, you know? And so exactly in 2018, I was really going out of my way to, you know, try and fix this stuff and try and, you know, get everything together. This one was pregnant. She was worrying about losing her job. Okay. And so um, one of the benefits in the Army is called this, they have these benefits for um, 
first called like a caregiver program. And basically this woman knew I, I, I got blown up, you know, over a decade ago and it was never on my military record or anything like that. And she, and this was a, a year after the army. Now this woman was pushing me. She was saying, Oh, I'm going to lose my job. And at the time I was paying all the bills, paying all the utilities. This is financial abuse, by the way. At the time this woman was saying she didn't have money. I was paying all the bills. I was paying all the, you know, all the utilities. I was, you know, working, doing all the work, do, you know, in school, kind of, you know, carrying the, carrying, you know, keeping the roof up. And this woman played on my sin. Lose my job, need money. And, you know, you need to go and get a concussion put on your military medical record to get us this benefit. Because this benefit would give a spouse like thousands of dollars a month. And so she, so this, so what I'm trying to get into is this woman was pushing me to commit federal health care fraud. Okay, this is like serious stuff. This woman pushed me to lie to the VI. So a month before this, my daughter was born, this woman had me write a two-page letter, and I sent to the VA basically just, just, just tarnishing my name, saying, oh, he's a veteran, he can't get out of bed, and I have to take care of him and all this stuff. And at the time, I have a pregnant wife who's crying to me, telling me she's going to lose her job, and she's like manic, you know, and it's like, you know, this, 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 this manic behavior that you can't, you know, can't pin down. And, um, and it's like, I sacrificed myself. Again, I lost all boundaries thinking, you know, you know, oh, what I'm doing is it may not be ethically right, but it's morally right because I'm, I'm, I'm protecting my spouse. I'm protecting my, you know, unborn daughter. And so I lied to the VA. I sent this two page letter to them saying, oh, you know, I have to take care of my spouse, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Mrs. So-and-so. And, you know, a few months later, they sent me a letter saying, oh, yeah, you, you know, you have, um, we approve your, you know, um, you know, your report of, you know, having, a, you know, uh, brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries. And so mind you, at the time, I was literally getting published. <laughs> I, was getting, I, was, I was working a consulting gig. I finished my master's degree in a top five program in the country. And at the time, I was applying to law schools. I got into about 20 law schools. I got into there's a category called the T14 law schools. They're like the top 14 law schools in the country. I got into two of them. I mean, I was scheduled to basically start law school at the time my daughter was going to be born. So think of that in, in, in comparison to me sending a letter saying that I can't get out of bed and, and because I got blown up a decade ago and I have a brain injury. This is, this is how these people, you see, these sociopaths, they know that at some point, based off of the, the, you know, the, the, the repetition of relationships, they know that at some point they're going to lose you. So they will do everything they can to suck all of the resources out of you. And this is a narcissistic supply. And it goes into when you're looking at this type of behavior, someone to push you to commit a crime, and they're skirting the area of, like, of like criminality, this is, this is Machiavellian. This is what they call like the dark triad. You know? <laughs> this, is, this is sadistic. This is the behavior when... They're not just doing things impulsively, you know, based off of, you know, their own false self. They are doing things strategically, and they're now, like, you know, strategizing ways to solely benefit themselves. And this is when you get into, like, the far end of the spectrum, you know, of, this type of, of these types of abusive people, these sociopaths. So that's where I found myself. And once that happened, again, a month later, my daughter was born. Um, I, I got into law school literally the night my daughter was born. I, was, I started law school the next day. I, I, was, I was working at a, at a nonprofit as a, as a financial analyst at that time now. So I was working full time. I got into law school, an evening program, and I'm a new father. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, you know, all of that in itself is an accomplishment. I was doing all of this. And this woman was just constantly taking more and more. When my daughter was born, 
um, this woman was talking, she started having suicidal thoughts, saying she wanted to kill herself, kill my daughter. And my sister, she works, she works in women's health. She believed that this woman had some sort of postpartum psychosis because this woman would confide into me this stuff. And so I didn't, you know, again, I was sacrificing my integrity to thinking I'm protecting this woman. You know, you, you feel, oh, it's just, she's ill. I have to, you know, help her more. And, 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 and I have to sleep less and work more and pay more bills. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you start just exhausting yourself to where you lose your sense of self. You lose all boundaries because, you, you, you know, you get, they incorporate you in everything. And you're already isolated. At this time, I was isolated from my family and friends, from my support group. And so this happened. My daughter was born. You know, I got paternity leave. My law school was really good. They, they, you know, let me miss like the first six weeks of lectures. And it was, you know, really, you know, considerate. And I was literally like up day and night with my daughter doing all the parenting, like all the stuff that normally a woman would do as a mother, like I was doing, you know, as a guy. And, and, and I wasn't like upset about it. I was happy about it. But this woman like basically was, was kind of, was, was no, had no empathy. And so after a few months, she ended up getting on, you know, after about a month of that, when my daughter was born, she ended up getting on psychiatric medication, you know, and, and literally like two or three months after that, this woman was returned a bit to her previous, like, it seemed like normalcy, you know, to her norm, you know, to her previous self. And she returned to having no empathy. And so I was literally like, I was sleeping like three hours a night, literally working. And I was missing like one day a week from work and missing school just to stay home and care for my daughter. And basically I was getting my, I was sleeping on the couch, you know, um, <laughs> I had my daughter's crib in the couch with my head, you know, next to my daughter's crib. This woman would be in the room with the door closed, loaded on Xanax and Zoloft sleeping and getting your 10 hours of beauty sleep. And I thought, Oh, I'm being a good husband. <laughs> you know? And so, so I would, I would see her and I would like look for like normal range emotional support, like a pat on the back, something like this. And she would just say, oh, you're emoting. You're emoting. You know, you're emoting. Uh, and, then, and when she started doing this, she started running off to another state, two states away where her mother was staying. So this woman, when my daughter was born, this woman started having problems with the parenting, just couldn't figure it out. And she started resigning herself. And in my absence, this woman's family members were handling my daughter. And so lots of issues started happening with that, that I was like trying to address. My daughter was not being handled properly. I found my daughter with like a blanket almost covering her face. Like, she, you know, this was like she was a week old. She wasn't strong enough to push the blanket off. And she could have died with something called SID, sudden intra infant death syndrome. <laughs> and like this, this is how it happens. Like I found my daughter in like bad condition, bad condition, not being taken care of. Um, she wasn't being fed properly, handled. She was being isolated in the room. And so little behaviors started happening like this. And after about two or three months of, you know, my after my daughter's birth, this woman was engaging in, again, no empathy, you know, absolutely no empathy. And, and then she started doing something, she started doing something called enmeshment. And enmeshment is when she starts incorporating my daughter into her delusion. And so she would say stuff like, oh, me and, I won't say my daughter's name, but she'll say, you know, me and, me and, me and our daughter, you know, your daughter don't, don't need to deal with your emoting. Me and our daughter don't need to deal with your sensitivity. Me and our daughter, so this is them starting to incorporate other people. And this is a form of triangulation. And this is how parental alienation happens. And so the, my aha moment, after this was happening, you know, I ended up leaving my job and I was in law school and I was w working as a clerk part-time. So I was able to be home more for my daughter. And I was trying to address these issues. And the woman, anytime she 
again, if you remember in 2015-16, whenever I would try and set a boundary or address an issue, like, together as, like, you know, as a, as a couple, she would go engage in stonewalling. She started doing that with my daughter. So once my daughter was born, she's an infant, you know, I would, you know, I was like, I was trying to incorporate this woman and, and parent with her together and set up boundaries and healthy behaviors. And she would, she would run off to another state to hide at her mother's house and she would withhold my daughter from me. So she started using my daughter as an object, as a weapon to hurt me. Okay. And this is, this is a common behavior now. This is a pattern behavior that lots of sociopaths do. And they, the reason is they, they don't, they, everything around them, you know, is an object. They don't, they don't, they're not really that, you know, there's, with empathy, there's, there's two types of empathy. You know, there's, there's cognitive empathy, you know, where you're aware of, you know, of, of others' empathy. And then there's, there's, um, there's, um, the second type of empathy. It's, it's, um, I'm forgetting the term for it. But, um, the second type of empathy is you being able to feel the other person's emotions, okay? And so, and so these people have, cognitive empathy where they can see that you have emotion and they can prey on that but they don't have it's called effective empathy they don't have effective empathy where they actually can see that they're hurting you they can see that they're doing damage so that's the thing is when people hear these 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 complex you know scenarios of narcissistic abuse it's hard for people to come to, to really grasp because it's easy to you, you people project normal psyches onto these people okay they project normal psyches so you think no one can be that evil. You know, no one can be that, that toxic. No one can be that hurtful and abusive. But they don't get, like, these people, it's not that they're, they're, they're masterminds of all this. It's that their brains are impaired. They literally don't have, they literally don't have empathy. They don't have a conscience. So they do things that hurt people, and, and they're not aware of it. And, and everything is about them. And so this is, and this, and this I started seeing this, the same abuse patterns. Once my daughter was born, I started seeing these, these big flags, and I said, I know that behavior. That's withholding. That's stonewalling. That's isolating. You know, and I started seeing all this stuff and how she was incorporating my daughter and treating her as an object. And I said, that's how I've been treated. You know, this one's in. And so little by little, this was happening. And in May, and now we're in 2019, um, I literally was having, I was having final exams for law school, and I was having um, – I was having a job interview to work as get this job for summer position as a clerk, and I was doing really well. And right at that moment, the woman just disappeared and took my daughter for no reason at all. Literally, just again, just and so that's another behavior. Is, you know, now I'm in. I went through a lot of narcissistic abuse support groups, and you will hear people say that these people engage in, in this abusive behavior when you're the most vulnerable. You know, when like you feel when you learn of your your parent getting cancer, you know, or when, you know, or when you have the pneumonia or when it, they engage in this behavior. And so, and so this, I found this happening to me. And so in, in May of 2019, I was in final exams. I was getting ready, you know, doing this job interview. My daughter was, a, was nine months old. I had no idea where she was. I was calling this woman, um, texting her, emailing her. I couldn't find her. At that point, I lost 30 pounds in a month and I was hospitalized for mild stroke. I had no, I had no clue where my infant daughter was. And every time, you know, in my absence, I saw my daughter being mishandled, neglected, abused. And like, I literally was hospitalized. And so it was, it was bizarre. And, um, in May, 2019, I went and I drove to the other state to get my daughter, you know, to finally recover her. 
and I went in there, and this woman was nowhere to be found. I found my daughter in, in a playpen next to a cat litter box. Like, literally, like, my, my brain exploded. Like, my do- like, that's so toxic to inhale. My daughter ended up getting up a respiratory infection. And so I went in, and I saw my daughter with all these rashes over her. And she had, you know, she, her diaper was wet, and she had cat hair all over her. And, and she would make this cat box, and it broke my heart. And, like, I, I, and this woman was nowhere to be found. And so I got my daughter, and I was getting her, her stuff ready to, to bring her back home, you know, to bring her back home. And then this woman's mother called the cops on me. And the cops come, in, and the cops come in there. with my, I have an infant daughter in my arm. The cops arrive, and this woman's mother says uh, to them, oh, it's been said, you know, that he's an unstable war veteran. It's been said. No one's ever said that. <laughs> you know? It's been said. That was the, the word she said. So the, the cops came up to me and talked to me. And they let me go. They did not ask for any idea or anything. And so at that moment, this woman's mother told the woman what happened. This woman called my entire support group. Like I'm talking like my doctor, that I, my, my primary care doctor, my best friend, my mother, my sister. And this is what, and this is what they do is, is this is a pattern of behavior. Is they, they start to, you know, basically they start to triangulate on you and they start to incorporate other people. And they start, you know, basically smearing you. And this is, this is this term flying monkeys, you know. They use these people, they use these enablers. And these people don't get it because, again, these, you just can't get that this person, you know, could be so toxic. You just don't really get it. And this woman was starting to tell people all of these, these, this, this false narrative, basically. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and so systematically she called everyone. And then I got home. I got, brought my daughter home. And um, basically, uh, this, this woman was here. I had my mother come with me. This woman was here at our house when I finally got my daughter home. And this woman was curled up on the, on the couch in a ball. And I was, you know, it was just manic. Again, manic. Like, so big ups and downs. You know, either this woman has no empathy or she goes to emotional extremes when interpreting the, minor, the, the most minor, you know, the most minor slights against her. Um, and, this is, and, this is, and this is because, you know, these people... Sociopaths set unrealistic expectations. So one of the things is when they idealize you, it's because they have this unrealistic expectation of who they are. And when they see you, you're just a normal person, they, they devalue you. And, 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 and they have this unrealistic expectation of who they are, and they can't live up to it. And so instead of addressing their false self, they have to make themselves a victim and say everything around them is the problem. That's pathological, you know? And so this is the types of behavior this woman was doing and and when i saw her you know she would have these big manic swings and i didn't know what to attribute to again i was still learning and that night she, she you know we were home and i was again trying to talk to her oh, i'm your husband i'm going to help you and this and that thinking you're going to help them and you know she she would she was saying oh i don't feel good i haven't taken my medication in a long time and so this, you know, and I said, you know, what's going on? She said, oh, I don't feel like I have headaches. I haven't taken my medication in about a week. And so this woman, you know, was supposed to take medication. I later found out that she was, they were prescribing her, um, you know, um, you know um, medication for, for antidepressants. And not only was she, she was supposed to take one, you know, one, re, one supply, you know, 30-day supply each month. She wasn't refilling the supplies until six, seven weeks later. And then, like, every two months, they're doubling the dosage. So it's <laughs> so even when these people go to get help, you know, it's, it's, it's not what you think. You know, and, and you can try and help them, 
but you just, it's, you know, they, they're not being treated for what's really wrong with them. They'll be treated for, dep- it's very rare that these people actually get diagnosed with, you know, with their, with this cluster B stuff, you know, it's very rare. <laughs> and so, you know, so this woman, you know, I believe that the, the medication probably hurt her more. And so the next day um, she had a manic episode and, you know, her mother was basically saying to her, you know, she woke up saying, oh, I don't feel good and I don't know what's going on. I, I can't control myself. And it's just really like just just really disordered behavior and really manic. And like at the same time, her mother's texting her saying, oh, just leave him, move the pencil, move to, move to another state. <laughs> and, um, you know, bring it. So so there's this weird this this weird, you know, um, you know, emotional incest that's happening between this woman and her mother and my daughter. And the, and again the, this woman resigned herself. So her mother's thinking she has full reign over my daughter, right? And so this is so I see I see this psychopath behavior now from kind of her mother. And and so you kind of pick up on this stuff. You see this pattern behavior. You know, I've treated my daughter like an object and I was trying to set boundaries and after that, in May, when this woman came back, the next day she once again um, kidnapped my daughter. At that time, she was you know manic, and I and I and I was feeding my daughter, and um, and I went to get a uh, I went to get uh, my daughter a bib, you know, um, and I went in the other room. This is this is way after I recovered her from the cat litter box. The next day, this woman's home. We <laughs> group here, you know. Um, this woman's home. We're home. I'm trying to feed my daughter, trying to establish some normalcy. And um, this, this, I went into the other room and I look, and um, I get my daughter's bib to feed her. I come back. Both my front doors are open. My daughter's not in her high chair. I look. I look. It's pouring rain outside. I go outside. The woman's running down the street. It's pouring rain. She's in flip flops and pajamas, and she's got my daughter in her arm. And I said, what the fuck? I, I said, what is going on? So I got outside. I ran around the corner. I stood in front of her. I said, stop, stop, stop. Give me, a, you know, give me your daughter. Give me your daughter. I very gently and carefully picked up my daughter from this woman's arms. This woman starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Help. He's, he's kidnapping my baby. Help. He's kidnapping my baby. And it's pouring rain. My daughter starts crying. The construction workers out at the corner start walking up thinking, you know, I'm doing something. And I'm explaining to him, no, it's okay, guys. I live right here. My house is there. Everything's okay. And I get in the house, and this woman, one minute is crying hysterically. Once we get, I get my daughter in the house, this woman literally, like, like a light switch, stops crying. And so you'll see this with these people. They have these crocodile tears. And this plays into, you know, they get this weird look in their eyes. Their eyes get really wide open. And it's almost, it's, again, it's like an inhuman look. And I, and I, met other people who've experienced this. They get this weird sociopath look in their eyes. And so this was happening. This woman calls 911 and says, help, my husband is an unstable war veteran. Okay? So so, um, the cops come, and they say, and they talk to them, and they say, I said, what's going on? I said, this woman's manic. I said, she's not well. I think she had psychosis. I said, I don't know what's going on. She's been struggling as a parent. I said, she's bouncing off the walls. And, you know, and I said, um, she's not taking medication. And I said, oh, well, you know, we have to take you. It's mandatory to take you to the VA to get you treated uh, to make sure you're okay. And I said, really? They said, yeah, we have to. It's protocol. I said, okay. They took me three blocks away to the VA, and an hour later the VA released me. And when I got home, my daughter was kidnapped once again. That was at the time that I lost. I went into, basically I went into shock. I was at final exams in law school. I lost 30 pounds. I ended up being hospitalized for a mild stroke. 
I mean, I could have wake up. I could have woke up with half my face paralyzed. You know, this is how severe narcissistic abuse is. You know, it sounds just like, you know, it's you can talk about it normally, but it's 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 severely traumatizing. It's severely traumatizing, and I went through that, and I had no clue what was happening. And that's when I started. Ha- this is my aha moment. <laughs> that was a, a long tangent, you know. These tangents are a, a sign of they're a sign of trauma. You know, I'm aware of that. But that was my long tangent. So at this time, now it's June 2019. I started googling this woman's behavior as a parent, and I was just I just had, I was at you know I read all the books, all the marriage books, all the parenting books. I had a marriage counselor. I had my own therapist. I could not figure out what was happening. I started Googling this stuff, and I found these words, parental alienation. And I actually found a doctor in California. His name's Craig Childress, and he worked a lot with foster children. He's, a, he's, a, he's in California. He's a big advocate um, for parental alien, for, to, for, to help children of parental, and parents of parental alienation. And he's unique because he ties parental alienation to cluster B. He ties it to narcissistic abuse. And when I, and then, so I found, I found out by going backwards, I was researching her, her, her parental behavior with my daughter, how she treat, objectified my daughter, used her as a weapon. And then, and then I found this parental alienation stuff by this guy, Craig Childress. And then I started saying, Oh, narcissist personality disorder. What is that? And then I remember the first three months of dating, <laughs> I call her, you know, a narcissist. And then I start reading about, you know, borderline, antisocials and all this sociopath stuff. And when I read that, when I started finding that and finding this literature online, you know, this, this woman named Shahida, Shahida Rabi, she was a best-selling author of, like, narcissistic abuse and, and has these articles. I found a doctor named Sherry Steins in California. Um, she's really good. She has, like, a psychology of abuse newsletter, and she has all of this literature about narcissistic abuse, all these articles published. And I started digging, and I started finding stuff, and when I read this stuff, it was a glass slipper. Like when you talk about projection and projective identification and like the gaslighting and like learning all this lingo, it is not pop psychology. Like this stuff is real. This is severely damaging abuse. And so I started learning all this stuff. And when I read all of this and started, edu- it was like all the lights in the room were turned on. It was like all the lights in the room were turned on. Like I knew exactly, I was like, yes, this is not chaos. This is patterned. There's words for this. You know? And you're learning the words and you're educating yourself. And, and, and you started getting validation. Because, again, being a normal person, you're blaming yourself, thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? I didn't care for her enough. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I should have slept less and I should have did more and given one more, you know. And it's like, no, like, you know, you're getting abused, you know. So, so that was my aha moment. And um, in July, a month later, this woman came back you know, um, acted like nothing ever happened. And I was starting to get educated. This is June, 2019. I started getting educated on all this stuff and, um, little by little. And again, I was trying to support this woman and help her. And I was still learning all this, this lingo and learning all this stuff in July came. And one night my daughter was in her crib and, you know, again, every night I would put my daughter to sleep. And after she goes to sleep, you know, I would do the dishes. I would, you know, I wouldn't take a shower till midnight. Like I was doing, I was making my daughter's lunch for the next day. Like I did all the parenting stuff and, and it was, and it was, it's, it's sad. You know, it's sad because these people, 
You know, the sociopaths, they're just, they're not capable of loving their own children. Like, they're not, they're just not capable. And, like, when you love someone and you give unconditional love and you think you're going to get it back, like, they're just not capable. Like, they have an impairment of empathy. They're not, they don't have empathy. They don't have a conscience. And so it's, 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 it's extremely, it's, it's profound. These people are just incapable of loving their own children. And so a lot, and, and at, you know, at this time, my daughter in July was crying in her crib. And this woman, again, jumped up out of the bed. I was, like, you know, um, changing or something. This woman went into my daughter's room. I looked down the hallway, and this woman, my daughter was nine months old, learning how to, like, stand up in the crib. And she was holding onto the rail, crying. She probably just wanted to be comforted or have a bottle. This woman grabbed her by the arm, started shaking her, pushing her down in the bed and screaming at her. No, lay down. I said, lay down. You know, all the babies are sleeping. Lay down now. <laughs> you know? And, and... And I went in and I said, stop, stop, stop. And I pulled her out of the room and I said, you know, we already talked about this. You're not going to yell at her. And it's odd because this woman, when, when my daughter was, you know, throughout the stages of my daughter's social life, I was encouraging this woman to go out and like go out to brunch with her friends and like, you know, talk to, you know, bring my daughter, trying to think, oh, she's going to like get some skin in the, skin in the game as a parent. <laughs> and one of the pattern behaviors is these people go out and they put on this grand show of being a parent. So she would go out and she would put on this big show of, of, you know, how, of her being a parent with this, you know, with my daughter. But then when she came home, she was hands off. Literally, she would physically push my daughter away from her. She was so hands off. So it's just bizarre because this is, this is, this feeds into, you know, that these people put on this, this illusion, you know, these people put on this type of behavior to deceive others to make themselves, you know, appear a certain way. And this was happening, um, and, and at this time, this woman, you know, at that night in July, this woman assaulted my daughter. I got her out the room. The next day, I woke up really early. I had to get a haircut. I haven't gotten a haircut in like a month. And I'm, like, scared. I'm like, if I'm going to leave this woman, I hope she doesn't kidnap my daughter again. So sure enough, she, she, I went to get a haircut at 7 a.m. I come back. My, this woman's gone. My daughter's gone. I, I didn't know what to do. I called the cops, and the cops come to the house, and, and I, said, I, I said, I don't know what to do. I said, this woman, I, I said, I don't know what's wrong with her. There's something wrong. I don't know what it is. And she took my daughter, and I you know, showed them all this stuff. And at the time, um, a month prior, I forgot to mention when my daughter was taken a month prior, this woman and her mother were drugging my daughter up with Benadryl. They had found my, I had to confiscate a bottle of Benadryl. They were literally drugging her up to put her to sleep. And so this, this is tremendously damaging for an infant child in the brain. Like, this is not, you know, it's, manager, you can give certain instances for allergies and things, but they were literally drugging her up. They went through half a bottle of children's Benadryl in a week to, to put her down. So my daughter's, you know, again, not in her home. My daughter at this time, you know, the first year of her life, my own mother only saw my daughter once. You know, this woman was isolating my daughter from, just like she isolated me from my friends and family, she slowly started isolating my daughter from 50% of her family. And so, and so this is the control, this is the abuse cycle that starts and is slow and steady with children from these people. And so July, when she assaulted my daughter, I called the cops and I explained to them, oh, I have this bottle of Benadryl and this woman's not taking her meds and, you know, something's wrong. You know? And the cops did not even want to write a police report. And again, this is difficult because I mentioned in the beginning, I'm a guy, you know, and, and it's, and it's kind of hard to, to speak on abuse 
it's almost, you know, it's, 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 again, it's like, from what I understand, there's no male domestic violence shelters or anything like that. Like, you know, I know that it's, you know, it's historically there's lots of violence and, and domestic violence with women, but it exists with men and it's something that has to be heard. And, and, you know, I'm an advocate for any man or woman who experiences any kind of violence. And, 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 and as a man, you know, as a, you know, as a guy, you know, maybe an alpha male, even from the army and all this, to experience abuse and to not know how to address it or have the resources and to be, and, and to go into marriage counseling and try to talk about it. And then they're blaming you for your response to being abused. That's called secondary gaslighting, you know, and that's, and this will happen to people. You know, this is very common. You'll experience this in court and counseling with therapists and by your own family members. And this is what I was really confronted with. And the cops did not even want, I had to talk them into writing a police report. I said, what do I do? And they said, I'll call child services. The child services came here and three hours later, and they, they walk, I walked through the whole house, you know, they check everything, your fridge. You know, I explained them everything that happened. And they said, if you see her, call 911. For the next week, police and child services were trying to call this woman and her mother. They were calling her from my phone, from their phones. They left voicemails. Um, this, this, this woman did not respond. They were about to do an Amber Alert for my daughter. They were about to do an Amber Alert. And then this woman sues me in Pennsylvania, sues me in another state, <laughs> lying, saying that she sues, this woman sues me in another state a week later, saying that her and my daughter live in this other state and that, you know, she is a victim of domestic violence and I assaulted her and my daughter. And, and it's just at the forefront what person assaults their spouse and child and then calls the cops on themselves? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know? that's, that's illogical. And, 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 and then calls child services on themselves and, and hands the phone to the law enforcement and child services. Please call anyone in my phone. Call them. You know, like, it just shows you, like, these, these people will use the court and in, in, in legal system to abuse you. Um, and there's actually a really good book that I'm reading now. It's called Legal Abuse Syndrome, and it's by uh, Dr. Catherine Huffer. And if anyone's dealing with the legal system and, and these sociopaths use the legal system as platforms to abuse, if you're dealing with that and you're being re-traumatized from, like, just courts that completely get it wrong, like, this book is a really good book. It's called Legal Abuse Syndrome, and that's helped me. So a lot of the stuff, so, so this is what this woman did. You know, um, literally, she assaulted my daughter a week later sued me for child abuse. And so I had to file all these lawsuits. I had to get attorneys into file lawsuits in this other state because she filed frivolous lawsuits, you know, with no proof of evidence, nothing. And, you know, lying to the, lying in her court motions and the court motions are just basically hysterical. And what you'll see is a lot of these people, they use smear. This is when I started one big, one big pattern behavior smear campaigning. So this woman, basically starts smear campaigning and she starts using persuasive rhetoric to influence people. And so you have a bunch of, you know, other podcasts where people talk about this happening in court and they smear you. And this is their way of discrediting you. And so they'll use kernels of truth that they have against you. And then, and it'll sound believable, but they'll just use this stuff to kind of portray you as the unstable one. And so this woman was doing that. And her proof was again, my, all these, these five texts and emails over the course of five years, that she like, you know, saved, put aside, you know, from when she was emotion, when she was abusive and I was responding to the abuse, she saved those text emails and she's presenting them to the court saying, look at him, everyone. He's a war veteran and he's unstable. Look at these texts and emails. 
right? And so, so that's so this is this is the, this is the crazy making stuff that they do, and the court buys into it. They use you know this woman, you know, is relying on stigma and bias and has no proof of anything, and this is what she started doing, and um, basically, um, I ended up um, having to file a lawsuit in the state I live for emergency custody and divorce to stop these lawsuits in another state to get them thrown out. And so that's where I'm at now. And now there's a forensic psychologist involved doing an investigation. And, and it's really tricky because, you know, um, it's really tricky because, you know, these, these people, you know, are manipulative. Like when you go through it and you have the experience with them as a parent or as a spouse, you know how powerful they, their manipulation is. You know it. You've experienced it, you know, it's in their character. It's, it's, you know, and so it's scary because the courts get it wrong, you know, and these people will get it wrong and, you know, it's, it's hard and it's difficult and, and there's a lot of invalidation. And so, you know, I'm at a point now I'm a year out from this stuff and this investigation is coming to a close soon. And, you know, this divorce will be done and my daughter's, you know, custody will hopefully, you know, she'll, she'll be returned to me. And, um, and basically, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's tough because you can't explaining all this in court. You sound like the crazy person. And, and it's like, you know, and it's funny because I don't have an attorney the whole time I was with this woman. I mentioned she financially abused me when I filed for divorce. I had to subpoena her bank records. This woman saved up over $200,000 while she was with me. I had no clue. So she, this woman right now has retained three law firms across two States. These attorneys cost upwards of a thousand dollars an hour. Who are completely toxic. And so I have no attorney. I'm doing all this on my own. I ended up having to drop out of law school and I had to leave my job and I'm now in the process of starting a new job and all of this. And this is just so destructive. I mean, this woman, I lost my health. I lost, you know, my job. I lost my financial stability. I lost my career. I lost my, my education. You know, I literally lose everything. And, and, and it's scary. Um, I, I, I forgot to mention one detail that, this happened in June 2019 time when I met this woman right before I went into the hospital for a mild stroke. I met this woman um, at a restaurant to try and talk to her because she wasn't telling me where my daughter was. And I was trying to tell her, like, her behavior is affecting me physically. Like, I'm having health problems. I was having trouble typing. My lips were numb. It was, it was weird stuff, you know, and I had this chest pains. And I was trying to tell her this, and when I was saying, I said, you know, hey, I want to tell you something about my health. It's really serious. This woman looked, and her lips pursed up in a smile, and she had this exhilarating look on her. She said, are you going to commit suicide? And she said that to me. And, and, and this, is when, this is when you're in, again, you're in this area of, of sadistic stuff. You're in this area of, like, extremely toxic behavior. Like, these people, there's... there's you know, they're, they're, they're very disordered. And like this woman was exhilarated. I mean, there's scientific studies, these types of people, you know, when you look at frowns, a part of your brain that's, you know, gets sadness, you know, gets stimulated. These types of people, they look at frowns and the happy part of the brain gets stimulated. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a scientific study. So this is what you're kind of dealing with. And when I saw that, I broke down in tears. They said, what? Like, you know, a suicide. I said, no. I said, I, I, I said, you know, <laughs> and I was trying to explain her a little bit. I know I, I, they said I could have had a mild stroke in my sleep. And it's like, this is what happens. And like these, so it's very dangerous because these people, the reason that's so exhilarating to her 
because it it, it it solidifies this this alternate reality. You know, these people's these people's understanding of what of what's happening to them is closer to fantasy than reality. Mm-hmm. They live in delusions, and that's because they they have a false self, and they will do anything to protect it. That includes having their spouse die. And that further fits into this narrative of them being a victim and their spouse being unstable and their, you know, all this whole story. And that they will do anything at anything to protect their false self. And, and this is exactly what was happening. And so now I'm in this courtroom battle. And, you know, this woman literally, when I, when I went to a court date in, in the other state for the first, you know, um, for the first court hearings for that, when she was trying to sue me there, I went in. I haven't seen her in two months. I have no idea where my daughter is. There's no formal custody order. I miss my daughter's one-year-old birthday, okay? Um, I see this woman. It's 9 a.m. This woman's in a black mini skirt, bright red lipstick, hair done up heels. I see her. I start shaking because I'm worried about her. I'm so worried about her and my daughter. When I saw her, I started shaking. When she saw me, she started smiling and lift her head up. Mind you, this is the woman that begged me to marry her, begged me to impregnate her, and now a year later is, is filing you know, false allegations against me. She did everything but filed for divorce. When I, when I talked to the attorneys in her other state, I said, what does she want? I tried to mediate and solve this. They said, we don't know what she wants. We don't, so these people, a big pattern is, is they're impulsive. They do things and they don't, they don't really, they constantly change their narratives to justify their impulsive behavior. And so this is, this is her, this impulsive, destructive behavior at, you know, in plain sight. When I finally filed the lawsuit in, in the home state where my daughter lives with where I live, when she came in there, this woman had no makeup, a black turtleneck, crocodile tears. You know, she's a victim now. So this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is a common thing with, you know, they call this the drama triangle, the Cartman drama triangle. These people will play the aggressor or the victim, and she's doing it with my daughter. In this sense, you know, she's, she's the savior parent, you know, and I'm the quote-unquote abusive parent. You know, so this is the triangulation. This is the toxic stuff that happens um, with these people. And when they, when, they, when they incorporate and mesh children into delusions. So now I'm, like, trying to advocate for all this through court. And it's hard and it's exhausting, but I'm at a point where I've realized, you know, you, 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 you know, these people, I met someone from an abuse group. So I go to some narcissistic abuse groups, and I recommend that if you're in the initial stages, do as much as you can to educate yourself. And with someone I met, you know, we were talking, and, and there was a story um, that I thought that I, I'll share here because I really liked it. And he says, you know, he says, um, there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a proverb, but it's a bit locations, but I'll share it. There's a, there's a frog and a scorpion, and, and, the, scorpion, and there's a, the scorpion wants to cross this river. And he goes up to the frog, and he says, you know, uh, can I ride on your back? I want to cross this river. And the frog says to the scorpion, no, I will not let you ride on my back. You're a scorpion. You know, there's no way. And then the scorpion says, um, uh, you know, to the frog, why would, I, why would I sting you? If I'm riding on your back across the water to get to the other side, if I sting you, we'll both die. And why would I do that? And the frog says, okay, you're right. So the frog lets the scorpion on his back, and the frog goes to swim across the water. And they're halfway through, and the scorpion stings him on the back. And the frog says, Scorpion, why would you do that? I'm now surely going to die. We're both going to die. And the scorpion says, I can't help it. I'm a scorpion. This is just what I do. And, and the point is, these people, they are not aware that they are hurting you. They, this is just embedded in their behavior. No matter what you do, these people will hurt you. 
They will hurt you. You can get, you know, there's instances of, of there's a doctor named Sam Vaknin, who's a self, who's a narcissist, and he's highly published. He's developed something called cold therapy for sociopaths. Supposedly it's been, it's worked a little bit, but the, the, the truth is these people, not, they don't want help. Nothing will help them. And you can exhaust yourself to the point of losing your everything, losing everything in life, losing your health, your job, your finances, your child. And, and nothing, will, nothing will help. These people are disordered, and they have an impairment in their brains. You know? So yeah. how, are you, how are you doing? I'm doing, now I'm at the point where I've went through with therapy and I've done support groups, and that helps, but, you know, um, you have to really educate yourself. And something that's empowering is, you know, knowing what's happening and, and having confidence in yourself. And so this is why things like this podcast, is really reassuring. And now I'm like, I'm starting a new career as a teacher next month. Um, I'm really excited for that. You know, when you give you some agency, when you get to help others, when you're so, dis- when you're, all your power's taken away from narcissistic abuse, to help others, it's empowering. And it, and it gives you some agency. And, and like, I'm doing that. I mean, yeah. So, uh, so ha- have you mentally prepared yourself for the co-parenting or parallel parenting that you'll have to be doing uh, after uh, your divorce is finalized. And, uh, as far as that goes, as far as custody goes, have those terms been worked out yet or anything along those lines? Right. So that's, that's the, that's the exact question that I'm facing right now is, is terms, how do I come to terms with the co-parenting? And the truth is, you know, my daughter, she will, she will have challenges when she's 5, 10, 15 years old. She will have challenges dealing with a, a, a high-conflict sociopath parent. And, you know, when, when your ch- children are 5, 10 years old, you can't tell them, hey, your mom's a sociopath. You know, you can't say that. Like, it's natural for children to want to love both of their parents. That's natural. And you want to try and do that. But the truth is, with these people, it's just dangerous. They will do When I was in a narcissistic abuse support group, you know, you sit around, and there was adults who were married and have children of their own that were still there coping with the narcissistic abuse from their own mother mm-hmm. from when they were five years old. And it's just like, and the, the behaviors they were describing was exactly the types of behaviors this woman was doing against my daughter. And so, so to see that, you see an, an extraordinary sense of urgency. So, but the truth is, you know, there's, a, yeah, so the truth, the truth is with this, you know, there, there's, um, one quote I like, it's like, you know, the world doesn't make sense, you know, and it says, you know, the world is not going to make sense unless you force it to. And that's a, that's a quote by Batman. <laughs> but that, the, the point is, like, you have to expect the courts are going to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. The attorneys are going to get it wrong. So, so, that, I, I, so, so I have a question. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, based upon the history of your yeah. soon-to-be ex-wife, thank goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> she is someone who has told the world that you are abusive. And you right. you are um, on the other side of that, and you're saying that, that she is. And as far right. as the court goes right now, do they you know believe her side of the story, number one? And number two, when it comes to this in the future, you, you know, you have to be on the defensive to yeah, know, to know exactly. that to know now that this is what might be coming for me 
that she might call again this out even after whatever happens. Uh, you know, you you get shared custody, and yeah. uh, that she might call out that card, and then you know maybe one day have uh, influenced your child so much that your your child is doing the bidding for her. So, is there yeah. ways uh, like, uh, that you've come across any way right now where maybe you do get children's services involved right away? So, you know, it might not be the greatest, but to have some when there is proof, you know, as a witness. Yeah. So if your wife does say something, oh, he, this, he did this, that there's someone there that is in not your family member, but a witness yeah. to what has happened because it's, yeah. you know, it sounds like you need to protect yourself here and not yeah. just protect yourself uh, before this divorce ends, but after it is over, because the last thing you want is to never see your daughter again and have her, use all of this collective um, uh, misinformation that she's used already to uh, technically um, kidnap her to another state and have zero repercussions. Um, Because in most cases, when someone does that, they're in jail. Yeah, but and she and, so, and, and she has avoided yep. that completely. So, um, yep. you know, going forward, exactly. is there is there a is there a professional that you've uh, looked up to how to uh, combat this? If this is a possibility in the future, or is is it some, yeah. is it something you've thought about? Yeah, so I've done a few things, and I'll kind of go over it, and maybe some of these things will work for others. And so the first thing is, um, throughout the past year, there's been two child abuse investigations on this woman. The first one I called in in July when my daughter was assaulted in a crib, they looked for this woman for over a week. Um, when they uh, and and and, and um, when they found her, you know, she, again she hid and then and then sued me in Pennsylvania. Um, I looked up the laws and the laws in uh, in the other state. I'm sorry, <laughs> and then the laws there say that when you if you're uh, there's a, a, a child abuse incident if you're protecting a child from domestic violence that supersedes everything so this is you're looking at sneezy lawyering from the very beginning from the very beginning these these lawyers find out this woman has hundreds of thousands of dollars and they're running around with bells on for her okay and so they're, they're telling her to lie in court records about her address she's getting away with it they're literally hammering me with lawsuits and you know and and, and it's just they're flooding the court and it creates it creates complete chaos. The court can't. The court just does not have the attention span. So that's why I said you have to expect people to get it wrong. This woman, I, when I sued she, that that first child abuse investigation, they closed it after just a few weeks, and they never even contacted me, the other parent. They, why? Because they go, and she is a wealthy white woman with expensive clothes. I'm, I'm calling it as it is. You know, I, this is the truth. And people know these, these, these child protective workers, they're overworked. They'll do whatever they can to get paperwork off their desk, you know, and they screw up a lot. And a lot of the ty- this type of, nar- when there's narcissistic abuse on a child, it's hard to see because it takes place over a period of time. And me as the normal range parent, I'm seeing it. A child protective worker is not going to, you know, they just don't have the, the, they don't have the tools to see that. So the first thing, they, the, the first report they closed. After a few months, I said, I need to find a therapist. And I researched on websites, therapists from narcissistic abuse, you know, in my zip code. (laughs) And I found a guy, and I started talking to him. And at this time, my daughter was going back and forth between these states. Um, And I started to, I said, look, 
there's something every time I get my daughter from this woman, my daughter's very lethargic. She has rashes all over her body. There's cuts and bruises on her back. She has stomach illness. She'll have like four or five diaper bowel movements in, you know, in eight, eight to 10 hours, you know, this full bat, like not anything, you know, it's full. And then I said, after 24 hours of being with me, I said, her rashes are gone. Her stomach's better. She's no longer lethargic, you know, all this stuff. And I said, I don't know what's, what they're doing to her. I mean, I said, and it's, and it's scary because it's like this stuff, you, it's hard to document. So this stuff, narcissistic abuse on children is hard to document. So, and, and so, and people just don't get it in the first place, <laughs> abuse on a child. So that's what I started communicating this to this therapist. He ended up filing a second report. To, you know, these professionals have to do mandated reporting. He filed a second report. And he said, hey, I started trying to take pictures of my daughter's rashes and her, and her bruises and, and, and all this weird stuff. I was trying to send him pictures, and I would send him updates. You know, I just needed someone else to hear me, to know that this is happening. You know, I tried the cops. I tried law, child services. No one got it. So I said, I just want someone else to know that this is happening. You know, you're at that desperate point. He finally filed an, a report through mandated reporting. The second child abuse case, this woman hid for a week. They found her. They, again, saw her only one time. She's a wealthy white woman with nice clothes and, and all this. Put, and, again, she's a manipulator. She worked in sales and all this stuff. And, again, without even contacting me at all, they closed the second case. So I'm standing in court saying there's been two child abuse investigations on this woman. She, I have proof that she abuses psychiatric medication. I'm not on any medication at all. <laughs> I don't need medication. You know, this woman's lying about marital aspects saying that all of this is, you know, and I had to subpoena her bank records. The court just, is, there's, there's this ingrained systemic problems where, and, and, and in many cases it's justified, but in, in certain states when these issues happen, you immediately go to 50-50 uh, with the child, and the state I'm in does not do that. So they just assume that since the child is so young, and this woman is, in fact, the woman gave birth, that she's the primary parent. When, if you remember, I gave you a bunch of examples. I can go another half hour more with this woman not doing any of the parenting, like literally pushing my daughter away. And so it breaks my heart to know that my daughter reaches and crawls and walks to me as her primary parent, you know. And this woman just played no role if the court is under the assumption that she's the female, the child is under three years old, the child, this woman should just, you know, take her however she pleases, and the father will ascertain his role in the child's life based off of a forensic psychologist investigation. And so it's like this woman's parental rights are, you know, given until, you know, proven otherwise, where mine have to be earned. And it's, and it's disorienting. And the truth is, that can go for, against this can, same stuff can happen to women, too, who are on the other end in my shoes. And the truth is, if you have someone who's a sociopath who's manipulative and they have money, court is empowering. Court is an empowering thing for them. So I'm in the position now where... You know, I have to know that this, all this stuff with the court and everything, this is, this is, these are just, these are short-term hurdles. I'm going to have to help my daughter for the rest of her life. Yeah, so, so, her, yeah, so my thing right. is, you, like they say to narcissistic abuse um, victims and survivors that, um, yeah. that you're supposed to journal. So in a way, your, yeah. your daughter... Uh, cannot journal. So you're going to have to do the journaling for her. And as part yeah. of that journaling, you know, when she is in your care, 
um, yeah. and she's leaving your home to go to your ex-wife's home is something that right. is, I don't know what is right or what is wrong, but to, you know, just like when you, I know I'm going to, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but you know, when you go yeah, in, when you go and get a, uh, you're going to go rent a car before you rent that car, that rental company for the most part takes a picture of every part of that car before sure. it's off the lot. So when they bring it back, they know exactly where the scratches are. They know exactly where it comes back and, wh- and what is wrong. Yep. So is that some of the things like, you know, you, you, to document what perfect shape your daughter is in before she leaves. So if she does mm-hmm. come back and there is that you can timestamp everything and be like, this is what's yeah. happening. And then over a, a period of time, you can show. I, I don't know if I'm yeah. right or wrong, if that's the right thing you're to wrong. do. You have to, you, it is. It is. That's exactly what I, that's exactly what, the, when I found this therapist, because I didn't want to deal with this stuff, you know, share this with other people, because I, it took me some time to start journaling and documenting. I was like so overwhelmed with, you know, these people preemptively accuse you of the very things that they're doing. That's projection. And so the court doesn't get it because the court projects a normal psyche onto these people thinking, oh, you know, she's accusing him of the very behavior she's doing. And so he said, she said. So the court just does not have the tools to distinguish this type of abuse. They don't have it. And, and it's sad. It's very sad. There's lawyers like you have Bill Eddy a lot on, you know, on your website with all his resources. There's Bill, people like Bill Eddy, you know, are big advocates for this stuff because the system is a bit behind. The courts are behind, the attorneys, you know. And, and, the, and the thing is, with this type of behavior, the things that you know to deal with, like if you're outside of the courtroom, you know, there's lots of things that, that, you, that can help you deal with it. And one of them is, you know, no contact, right, Gray Rock. Right, that, that's a big, that's a thing. Um, and, you know, you want to do that. And, and there's another thing called JADE. JADE is a way, is, a, is an acronym to remember how to, how to be JADE with someone. When these people conf- uh, do things, they're trying to elicit any response, good or bad, that gives a narcissistic supply. And, and the term JADE stands for you, you should not justify your behaviors. You should not argue them. You should not, um, you should not, um, um, what is it? Justify, argue. Uh oh, now I forget <laughs> my own, my own um, accurate acronym. But it stands for um, justify, argue, defend, and explain. So when you when you're getting when you're dealing with these people, when you do no contact, you do not want to fall in any traps. Don't feel like you need to justify yourself. Don't argue. Don't defend yourself from accusations, and don't explain yourself. You do not owe these people anything, and that's the way you have to find. You these people will never give you closure. And so you have to find it in yourself. And the thing is, with children involved, you can't do that. It's hard, and you have to go limited contact. But even worse, in the court situation, courts encourage adversarial behavior. You know, the court system is developed to where they think these two parties come in, and through this adversarial litigation, somehow the truth will reveal itself in the courtroom. That's true for criminal cases or disputes with property, perhaps. But when you're dealing with the gray area of sociopaths and of child abuse, it's not, it doesn't work. And the court, you know, does further damage because they don't just, it's so complicated, the court just doesn't have the bandwidth. So, so I'm in a position where, like, you kind of have to know that you have to develop, you have to stay strong through this, and you have to kind of expect these people to get it wrong. Expect the courts to get it wrong. Expect the forensic psychologists to get it wrong. Expect your neighbor, expect your, your family to get it wrong. And, but know that you still have to stay strong because if you have a child involved, they're going to need to lean on you. And you're going to have to give them the coping skills that you crafted. 
and to teach them at an early age how to deal with their own abusive parents. And so that's a big thing. And you, again, you cannot go to a 10-year-old and say, hey, your mom's a sociopath. You know, like you have to have the tools in your tool bag to help them to be the emotionally strong, you know, normal range parent for them. And so I'm at a point where I'm expecting the courts to get it wrong. They're already getting it wrong. They're not understanding. You know, I'm preparing for the forensic psychologist to make mistakes. But I know that there comes a day and my daughter will walk away on her own. My daughter will see and be conflicted with the things going on her going on with her because it's just it's just it's an, an inevitable and how much damage is done from now until then remains to be seen but you have to be the parent that's willing to still stand through that you know and that's why i say you know you have to force the world the world's not gonna make sense you have to force it to make sense because you have to stay strong and expect everything else to get get weird around you you know but you have to still stay consistent and know that you were abused you know, you're not, you're not wrong for reacting to abuse. You know, it's okay that, you know, this happened. It's okay that you allowed yourself to be vulnerable. That's normal. You know, all this stuff, you know, like commend yourself for these behaviors, for having empathy. You know, don't beat yourself up too much about, you know, being quote-unquote codependent or anything like that. Like, those are, there's lots of really good qualities. But the big thing is to educate yourself and really gain agency by starting to help others. And that's where I see this podcast playing. I'm doing now, I'm starting to do volunteer work with um, equine therapy, like horse therapy, Mm -hmm. to help, like, other people, um, you know, disabled children, veterans. They go through, you know, they interact with horses here, and it's a form of therapy. And so I'm volunteering for that. So, like, things you can do to kind of gain agency and be healthy, you know, because it's it's a big, it's very important to always return and get validation for this just extremely disordered behavior you're dealing with. But it's important you don't want to ruminate. You want to continue to, to be yourself again. Um, there's a guy like, you know, Jackson McKenzie. He wrote a really good book called Psychopath Free. And, um, and it's about narcissistic abuse. And he talks about this. Thing, and something I like, he says, you know, when you're abused, you get through in, in the initial stage, it's all about validation and, and educating yourself. And he's like, but after that, you have to know, like, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want. You know, and, and you can be yourself or be a totally new person again. And that's, 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 that's important because, like, me, I'm like, I used to play guitar. I'm returning to play guitar again. I used to play lots of sports. I'm returning to play basketball. With the pandemic, I can't. <laughs> I'm returning, you know, to play basketball and to go back into the gym. And you have to do that. You have to do that. And it's hard, especially when a child's involved and you have so much hands and noise, you know, being brought in by these people. Um, it's hard, but you know, you, you have to look at this in the long term. You know, there's, um, in the army, there's this, there's, there's something called the Stockdale paradox. Um, the Stockdale paradox, there was a, there was an air force officer named some, uh, officer Stockdale and he was in the Vietnam war and he was a prisoner in one of these prison camps. And they called this paradox. He called it the, the army called it the Stockdale paradox. And what is this is he survived this prison camp and a lot of people did it. And when they ask him what, they, what these people died from, he says they died of a broken heart. He says they died of a broken heart. And he says, he says in the Stockdale parents, he's like, you have to know, you have to find that, that higher power, that inner faith that you have to know that in the end, this is going to go your way, that there's God, whatever your higher power is watching over you, watching over your children, you know, in this situation with me, you know, you have to really find affirmation in that. That's a, that's a constant, you know? And he said, these people had that, but they, but they, they didn't have the second part. And the second part is 
you, you have this faith. You, the first part is you have this faith in a higher power, knowing in the long term, you're, you're, you know, you're, tr- you're being true and you're right. But the second part is you still have to deal with the present reality. You still have to be able to deal with the present reality. You can't resign yourself and just say, oh, okay, you know, this is going to happen. I'm going to put, you know, you still have to kind of stand up for yourself and be strong. You have to find that strength in the present. And so that's the Stockdale paradox. And that's just, I thought about that when I remember it, it applies to narcissistic abuse because you have to have that long-term awareness of, you know, you're a good person. You know, you're a good person. These people prey on you because you're a good person, you know, but you have to still deal with the present. You know, you have to still get through the current fight. You have to defend yourself and you have to keep speaking the truth. And if that means going on a podcast or if that means supporting others who are in their initial stages, you know, of narcissistic abuse, or anything at all, you know, going through a 12-step program, you know, all that stuff is, is worth it. And so, like, that's kind of where I'm at now in, in taking those steps forward because this is beyond the current court fight. This goes into the rest of my daughter's life, you know. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is where I'm looking at. So well, you have to really find that, that strength, yeah. Well, I really wish... Uh all of the best for you. Everything uh, that everything turns your way. Uh, you've been through a lot, and um, you know. I just you know I just hope that you get to see your daughter. I know it's been a very very long time since you've seen your daughter. Um, yeah. And that your daughter is safe, and that you guys are able to create a safe. Uh, life for yourselves uh, after this is done, and, and um, have. A, I know it's going to be difficult, but to have some sort of uh, peace, um, even though it, it'll probably be uh, a fight for a, for a long time. Um, but I do, you know, wish the best for you because, um, you know, you've just uh, you, you poured your heart out here for everyone today and uh, shared your story and you've done a, a service because you did a really good job of, you know, pointing everything out, um, all of the different types of abuses and just, I know, I know what you wanted to do today and you did a really good job. Yeah. Of it, so, okay. um, so I really just from the bottom of my heart and everyone out there, thank you for you know being part of the show and, um, it's been an honor for you to share your story with me today. Well, I'm glad. Um, and, you know, keep, you know, anytime you can get a Bruce Springsteen uh, quote into your podcast, you know, do it. <laughs> I, well, I want, I want you to be, ta- I want you to be taken to the promised land. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate it. And, you know, it's, it's everyone else listening, you know, if you find a, a, a way to, contribute and, and, you know, all the other people, it's, it's amazing hearing their stories, you know, um, you know, it's so many, you know, people really challenge, challenge stereotypes with everything that they're sharing here and it's important. And, um, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, you know, it's, 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 I appreciate having the opportunity to contribute to. So, you know, I'm glad you do this and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully something, even if it's just two minutes of what I said, if it helps another person, you know, it's, that's, that's really good. You know, I, that's kind of what I was aiming for. So well, I think you're going to yeah, help thanks. a lot of people. So thank you <laughs> for being on the show, Bruce. And uh, All right. for everyone else who is listening, I hope you have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>